I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this edition of the From My Angle podcast, I share a conversation with Jeffrey Saligno, one of the country's preeminent writers and thought leaders in the area of higher education and college admissions. Now, I must admit, this was exciting for me. A bit of a celebrity rush overtook me when Jeffrey responded favorably last summer to my request to record an episode of the podcast sometime this year. We have remained in periodic contact since that last summer's initial meeting and recorded this session in January of 2019. I have read one of Jeff's three books entitled There is Life After College. I am a regular follower of his and his role as a contributing writer for the Washington Post and the Atlantic. I follow Jeff on Twitter, and I listen each week to the Future You podcast in which Jeff and his co-host Michael Horn engage higher education innovators and practitioners in conversations about the industry. Needless to say, I am a Jeff Saligno groupie of sorts. In this conversation, Jeff and I assess the state of college admissions today and the changes that have overtaken this space in the last couple of decades. Jeff talks about the concept behind his latest book project, now in research, on how students and families experience the college admissions process. I'm excited Jeff has included parish students and our Center for College and Life Planning team in this project to date. So enjoy this episode. I think you will find it insightful. Well, welcome to the From My Angle podcast. I'm thrilled and honored to have Jeff Saligno author and a columnist and insightful uh, theorist on all things higher education on the From My Angle podcast. Jeff, thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, Dave. It's a real honor to, uh, to have you. I follow your writing and your podcast, Future You, which I'd commend to uh, my listeners, uh, which he does with Michael Horn, on really the major trend lines that are influencing higher education. But beyond what I just introduced, uh, why don't you take a moment, as I know you like to do in your pod, to uh, tell everybody uh, really how you situate, because you wear many hats uh, in the field of education and as a writer. So uh, why don't you just give us a, the, the thumbnail sketch of your, uh, of your different uh, uh, points of contact now. I do, Dave, and it's, you know, it's not a career I ever expected to, to enter, which is always advice to students going off to college. I say you'll major in something and you'll end up working in a million different jobs uh, over the course of your career. And I, I started at the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a magazine that covers uh, colleges and universities around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the late 1990s, thought I'd be there for a couple of years, but became fascinated with the industry of education, particularly higher education, and spent 16 years there in a variety of roles, including being the top editor. And then back in 2012, I took a, a, a step back from being editor there. And this is at the time when online education was becoming much more uh, popular and everybody was talking about MOOCs, these massive online mm -hmm. open courses that could reach hundreds of thousands of people. And I went out and I uh, started to research what the future of higher ed would look like. And that ended up being my first book called College Unbound. Mm -hmm. Well, that book, to be honest with you, sold many more copies than I ever expected. Uh, and I kind of got the bug for writing books. So I followed that book with my last book called uh, There is Life After College. And in the process, got hooked up with Michael Crow, the president mm -hmm. of Arizona State, where I have an academic appointment, as well as with Rich DeMillo at Georgia Tech, um, where I also have an academic appointment. So I have two academic appointments plus uh, 
now uh, just basically writing books and, and consulting and, and speaking on the future of higher ed. And so now my, I'm in the midst of, uh, you know, my next book, which is on, on college admissions. And you're also a board member because you sit on your alma mater's uh, board at Ithaca College, and uh, we share uh, similar geographic college uh, backgrounds. I went to Hamilton, uh, just uh, a little a little east of uh, of Ithaca, a good another good small liberal arts college uh, in in the Northeast. But yeah, I think uh, you know my listeners know that my interest in higher education uh, is uh, really the phenomenon of the canary in the coal mine. You know, I think uh, private independent schools like Parish, which charge tuition, are tuition dependent, which are preparing students, as our mission says, for the complex global society, really need to be thinking seriously about their model. You hang around with a lot of people that are heroes to me, Mitch Daniels and Michael Crow, who you mentioned. We have uh, obviously Michael Sorrell here, Paul Quinn in Dallas, uh, who is a, a good friend and who I've done a podcast with. And so for me, I'm always interested in you know, what are the trend lines in higher ed, kind of a, a place that's a little archaic and a little slow to move, but what are people talking about? Because for me, that's what we should be talking about at Parish. So what I'd like to cover with you today around your points of expertise are your article about a year ago, March 2018 in the Atlantic on the third education revolution, which really gets at how the world of work is changing. Then uh, spend a couple of minutes beyond that talking about how higher ed is trying to shift based on uh, how the world of work is changing, and then maybe conclude with just some thoughts on what that compels schools like Parrish to be thinking about as we tear up uh, toward that changing uh, world of work. So t talk to us a little bit about that article that you wrote, The Third Education Revolution, which really kind of mirrored changes in education to changes in the world of work, and specifically, what's going on in the world of work today that should have all of our attention? Well, you know, if you go back through uh, uh, world history and particularly American history, we've always responded to changes in the workforce with changes in education. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, at, at the turn of the 20th century, we kind of, we had the high school movement uh, because at that time, many people didn't even go to high school or graduate from high school. We built these high schools around the country in the, in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, which enabled, by the way, people coming back from World War II to actually go to college because right. they had a high school diploma. Uh, and then in the 60s uh, with the Higher Education Act, uh, we knew that changes in the economy, we were moving away from an industrial economy, that people needed to have a college education. And so we had the college for all movements. So that's the first and second wave. The third wave now is, is what I call kind of continual and lifelong education. It's clear to me that you cannot think of education as something that happens one time in life, typically when you're 18 to 25 or higher education, 18 to 25. Um, but now you need to think of education throughout your entire life. Uh, and so really this third <clears throat> education wave is this idea that we're going to constantly be upskilling constantly finding new skills to keep up with new jobs because that's what the economy is about today, right? Most people today are not going to have one career or one job throughout their entire lives. And, and, and to, to prepare for that, we need to be constantly educating ourselves. So that's the third education wave. And you cite in your article some really incredible statistics that some of our parent listeners and others that are already out in this uh, rapidly changing workforce probably know. Uh, the University of Oxford study from 2013, which talks about, uh, you know, in the next uh, two decades, uh, jobs being uh, displaced uh, by some estimates from McKinsey. Uh, as many as a third of American workers may uh, have their jobs changed by 2030 because of artificial intelligence. So I love that year 2030 because when I'm talking to prospective parents, who are entering their children here in Paris in 2018, 
for a 12 to 14 to 15 year journey through our place. I tell them your child will be graduating from parish around 2033 or 2034. So don't be talking about what we'll do for your child in 2018. Be thinking about how parish is going to prepare your children for that world. These are some really amazing um, insights on how the world of work is going to be so different uh, just a decade and a half from now. And, and we're, what we're really going to need to do is prepare students how to complement technology rather than compete with it. Because, you know, computers and robots are, are going to do some jobs, entire jobs, better than humans. And, and they're going to do parts of human jobs. And I will argue probably the parts none of us really like to do um, better than us. And so, yeah. uh, so instead of trying to compete with technology, which I think has always been the tack that most workers took, well, if I could just stay one step ahead, I think really what we need to do is, is show students how they can complement technology. And that's largely through, you know, teamwork and problem solving right. and, and what we typically refer to as the, as the soft skills uh, that I think education provides. Yeah, another higher ed um, hero of mine, I know you know, is Joseph Ayun at Northeastern. And he's really developed a framework in his latest book, a very compelling one around that very notion that you have to be digitally uh, educated and, and connected. But these uh, sort of human skills that will complement the technology as you're talking about uh, are really essential. So he's another great read for parents who are uh, really trying to think about the world that their children will move into uh, when, when, they, when they get there. So this really brings us then to this question of if the world of work is arguably going to be different, what is that creating now in terms of, uh, you know, frankly, some, um, some, some shaking of the foundations of higher ed in terms of, you know, what's our, what's our purpose, right? Uh, and so let, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's happening there uh, at, at that point. There's been a lot of activity uh, on your Twitter stream and Michael Horns and others in the last week, week and a half, just around sustainability, closures of colleges, small liberal arts colleges, for, especially in certain demographic areas. But uh, beyond that, how programmatically are you seeing uh, higher educational institutions trying to adjust and adapt to these workplace changes that you've written about? Well, let me start off, uh, first of all, by saying they're not adapting fast enough, uh, I, I think. And that's true, I think, of most colleges and universities and probably most K-12 through schools as well. But where I do see them adapting, first of all, we're much more focused on outcomes uh, of education. So you, you know more colleges and universities now are starting to talk about what they do for career services from day one, from the time students walk in the door. And they're really helping students, I think, think about what they want to do as a career and a job. And also, again, and also think about uh, beyond just that first job as well. So that's, that's number one. Number two, I think they're helping students translate their learning mm -hmm. so that they, they're not just sitting in classrooms and wondering this theory and how is this going to apply to work outside the classroom. And I think they're, they're really focused on third. And I think finally, I think they're really focused on what I would call, uh, especially at residential colleges, um, the, and what I think is the strength of residential colleges is all that learning, Dave, you know this from Hamilton, all yeah. that learning, and I know this from Ithaca, you know, what I have with me today, now that I'm in my 40s and, you know, 20 plus years after college, it's that what I learned outside the classroom, um, you know, the leadership skills, the teamwork, the problem solving, all those things that really came from outside the classroom. Uh, that I keep with me to this day. And I think that has really led to my success. And I think colleges finally understand there's that secret sauce. Um, and now they're starting to be much more deliberate about making sure that students know what they're learning outside the classroom. Uh, and they're not only appreciating it, but they're actually doing it. There are, however, some universities that are really trying to take big swings at what we at Parish call breaking apart the apparatus of school. You know, we are very interested in how we use time how we deliver content, 
how students demonstrate mastery, at what pace they move. We think at Parrish there should be a lot more fluidity uh, around our model. There are some higher ed uh, places that are doing it. I was down at Georgia Tech. You referenced their, their report, Deliberative Innovation Lifetime, uh, Deliberative Innovation Lifetime Education is an amazing look at Georgia Tech in 2040. Stanford has done some really interesting things here. Michael Crow has transformed Arizona State uh, in that regard. I am gonna get to see Randy Bass in DC in March at Georgetown uh, in, in the Little Red House where they're doing uh, their innovation piece. Um, so it, it, some of these models that are interesting, connecting back to your point of lifelong education, are this notion of a college experience not contained in the years 18 to 22. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you know, might a student leave Parish in 2033 and be able to, in a Netflix model, sort of subscribe or, you know, kind of enroll in a college experience that was longer? You want to speak to a couple of the models that you know have been uh, uh, poked at and, and explored? Yeah, so you mentioned Stanford, right? So they came up with this model a couple of years ago called the Open Loop University, where instead of being accepted to four years of education there, you'll be accepted to six years. And the key is you could use those six years anytime throughout your life. Uh, Georgia Tech, thinking of the same thing. How do we build a lifetime commitment to higher education? And that might look like, for example, Georgia Tech, imagine Georgia Tech Apple-like stores around the country where you could take master classes or if you're an online student, you could have access to mentors and others uh, at the Genius Bar at, uh, at a, one of these Georgia Tech stores. Uh, you know, Arizona State, uh, you know, thinking not only about online education, but hybrid education, right? How do we mix kind of the strengths of a face-to-face -face education uh, with the strengths of online education, particularly as students are trying to work uh, and go to school at the same time. So I think you see all of these efforts where we're thinking, you know, you don't have to go off to some idyllic campus, you know, hours from every major city, uh, and, you know, that was our case in places like no Hamilton, right? Uh, but now we can be connected to places around the world, and not just, by the way, in the U.S., but globally, we could be connected in ways that we weren't able to be connected before. Yeah, I think it's the biggest challenge. And I know you saw Chris Gruber at Davidson and, and, uh, and, and, and from our school experience, the biggest challenge for the small liberal arts colleges, given all the attributes that you just referenced that they, that they, that they uh, give to their graduates, is their, is their potential disconnectivity from a major metropolis or other area that they can leverage to unite what's being studied with what's going on in the real world, right? To create relevance inside the ivory tower. And I think this is really a challenge for the small liberal arts colleges in certain domains to do that. But in general, what the Georgia Tech Report uh, talks about, I know you've written back uh, about as far back as 2016, is this notion that the one size fits all model in higher ed is a, is a dangerous one. One size fits all means you come at 18 and you leave at 22. One size fits all means your courses are credit based around Carnegie units and you can't move more quickly, right? Georgetown's looking at a lot of those types of models, right? So talk to us a little bit about, again, for a next generation graduate of Parrish, uh, might that four-year architecture look more personalized or customized or is it just going to be too hard for higher ed to make those types no, of changes? I think we're I think we're going to largely move to personalized because of cost, right? You know, the cost of higher education is is continues to get out of control. Uh, it's really hard for middle class families, particularly, uh, to afford higher education. We're seeing the discount rates of of colleges, universities continue to increase. All that's unsustainable, and the demographic wave that's coming in the country 
the drop in high school graduates, not there in Texas, but you know, Correct. in the, of the Northeast and Midwest uh, at the end of next decade is just going to mean that colleges are going to have to look different or else they're going to go out of business. And how that might look in terms of personalized education is I think we're going to see a lot more competency-based education, meaning that if you know the information at week four in class, you don't have to sit through another 10 weeks of that class, right? You're going to basically move at your own pace. Um, and this is good for students who are slower learners. You yep. have to take them more time, but it also helps students who know the information and can move on and have the skill sets. And they're going to be able to prove those competencies through all new types of, of, of testing uh, and other types of assessments that are happening now in the workforce, right? I think we're gonna move, for example, I think students in, in the next generation, and I have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old at home, you know, they're not gonna be, uh, you know, they're not gonna go in for a traditional interview, right? They're gonna be given, they're gonna be participating in some online game, right? They're gonna be doing some sort of strategy game to figure out how do they think and can they, can they, do they have the skills to succeed on this job? I think that we are moving much more to an outcomes-based society. In other words, can you do the work um, yep. rather than just sitting in a classroom or sitting in an interview to prove that? Yeah, show us, show us what you know. Yep. Nathan uh, uh, Gurry at, at Carleton, he's, he's the, a real demographic guru yep. for those of you that are interested to just really understand the perils of higher ed, uh, especially in this coagulated areas of the Northeast and uh, Mid-Atlantic where so many small liberal arts colleges blossomed 250 to 300 years ago, but now are seeing demographic shifts dramatically move away from them. But Michael Crow talks about wanting to create the really the new American university, right? And, and for us, that's for me, that's really what we're trying to do at Parish with the new independent school model. We are on track to become what we think will be among the first kind of competency-based independent schools where you can marry strong college preparatory skills with what we would argue is a healthier experience when you're moving at pace, just like for you and me in our work world, right? I, you know, I don't want to work on something that's too difficult or too easy. I want to be slotted on work that's important to me. I also want more voice and choice in my work. I want to work on stuff that, uh, that I find interesting and that matters. So for us, we think mental health and wellness, which is a real problem on our college campuses today and in independent schools uh, across the country, can be pivoted by changing the model to more of a competency-based model. And we think it's reflective of where the world of work is going to go, to your point, but hopefully, and perhaps, the, the, world, of, the world of higher ed. Um, and, and that's, I think, something we've taken some inspiration from, from like Southern New Hampshire and the work that Paula Block is doing. Um, and this is, a, this is really starting to move out across the country. I think you're seeing that too, aren't you? Yes, we are. And, 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 you know, and I think part of the problem, I think, probably in the independent school world as well as in higher ed, is that nobody wants to look too different than their than their counterparts and their and their competitors? And so what we're seeing um, is that you know you see a couple of outliers, but then those outliers get attention, um, and they're starting to see success. So the Southern New Hampshire's of the world, the uh, the Arizona States of the world. You mentioned Michael Sorrell there at, at Paul Quinn College, who's trying to create this idea of the ur you know the urban, urban work college. Yeah. I love the idea of this. Mm -hmm. right, so we're seeing all of these early adopters. And then once they achieve success, then the rest of higher education comes along. Right. Uh, and so, and I, and I think we're at that period now. I think that the ASUs of the world and Michael Crow's vision now is 15 plus years old. And I think that's what we're starting to see. We're starting to see, hey, that's working. Let's follow it. 
So just in wrapping up, let's talk a little bit about your book that's coming out next year. That's how we got connected. You've been in some conversation with our team and, and some other schools across the country about the uh, really the college experience for today's seniors, which to my point around mental health and wellness, you know, we've, as you know, rebranded our college counseling office, the Center for College and Life Planning. We don't think we should be talking to families only and exclusively about a four-year college experience after Parish, and most definitely not about a narrow band of some 20 colleges uh, after here that are the only ones to attend. But uh, give us the basic premise of your of your book, what we can look forward to uh, in its contents, so that for our parents that are coming up and getting ready to think about life after Parish, uh, they can jump into your, your book to get some edification and, and further understanding. So the tentative title is called The Choice, uh, A Year in the Life of College Admissions, Who Gets In and Why. And <laughs> really what I'm looking at is I'm, I'm looking at basically how the modern college assist, uh, admission system works. Um, we know that at the very top, uh, among the most selective colleges and universities in this country, they are getting a bulk of the applications now. Um, and and uh, thus the competition to get into them is uh, is more fierce than uh, ever before. We know that, uh, that it's incredibly not transparent how students get into college. And so that uh, at your level is creating this anxiety. Oh my God, I have to do more. I have to participate in more clubs. I have to do more activities. I have to do more volunteer service. And of course I have to take more AP classes and get an A's and all of those, right? Which is creating this anxiety. And then by the way, you're still not getting into college, right? Um, and so what I'm trying to do, and I, I'm on the inside of the admissions process at three places, uh, Davidson, small liberal arts college, Emory, large private selective college and the University of Washington, big public. Mm. And what I really want to show parents is that, first of all, these are not systems to be gamed. You know, it's, 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 it's a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of people trying to get into a small number of spots. It is what it is. And what I'm trying to do is just try to bring some transparency to the system so that parents hopefully and students, but mostly parents, could calm down a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and put less pressure on their sons and daughters, and to say, this will all be okay. Yeah, and, and, and it, at the end of the day, what, what are you discerning is uh, the biggest point of pressure release? Is it that you should apply to a broad range of schools to find fit that, because it's essentially not a gameable system, you just do the best you can and put your stuff out there and know there's an element of randomness to it. Like where, where, where are you moving with some of your conclusions? I mean, I, I you know, there, there are certain truths in, in higher education, right? I, I, uh, and one of the truths is that, you know, high school matters, right? Uh, the, the, the seriousness of your high school curriculum matters. Does that mean you need to take 14 APs? No, but you need to be, you need to take a, a tough curriculum across the board, don't be too high in science. Don't be too high in English, right? Try to have a, a nice broad uh, function and get good grades in them, right? And if you're going to have low grades, try not to get them your senior year. So that's, that's truth. Uh, in terms of activities, they want to see breadth and depth, but they want to see some level of commitment is really what this is about. It's not necessarily about leadership and it's not necessarily about participating in 20 different activities. They want to see some level of, of, of commitment. So those are, those are definitely truths in the, in, this, in the system. But beyond that, it's a lottery in some cases, right? Uh, and I see this and I see the decisions that are being made as I sit with these readers. Um, what's happening is that, you know, your kid didn't get in because one other kid got in. Uh, your kid didn't get in because 20 and 20 other kids didn't get in, right? This is not a one-to-one -one system. The volume is incredible. Um, it's, in, it's, in, it's incredibly tough to really assess uh, these students and, and hopefully in the future, if anything, we could come up with a better system to 
really get to know these students better. Um, I'm not quite sure the college application as it exists today really does that. Um, and it's unfortunate. Um, but with the volume, um, I'm not quite sure we could have a better system right now. Yeah, and, and we certainly think that uh, that is a great argument there about its relative randomness to focus more on depth and learning, focus more on points of passion. We feel even uh, as we move at uh, more uh, demonstrations of mastery rather than uh, persever uh, really perseverating on grades, uh, these are things that are not going to compromise uh, the, our uh, students' ability to get into colleges. And we think it's going to make their experience in uh, in their learning here at Parish uh, healthier healthier over time. So it's going to be interesting to, to see where things go. Even the great reports like Georgia Tech uh, are essentially saying we can't project with any certainty what college or higher education will look like uh, in 2030 or 2035 or 2040. Uh, I think most trends now suggest that if uh, institutions don't shift, the world of work is going to come back and, and demand that they that they do more rapidly or some are just going to close. They're just not going to be able to sustain themselves. So it'll be interesting to, uh, interesting to watch. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you so much for offering uh, us your time and, and your wisdom. Uh, it's great to speak with somebody who I follow so closely and, and rely on for my own education and my, uh, in my work. So thanks so much for joining the From My Angle podcast. It was great to be here, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. Join me for my next episode when I will talk with Travis Lape, the Innovative Programs Director with the Harrisburg, South Dakota School District. Travis visited Parrish in January to train our faculty as he has been an agent of change in Harrisburg, one of the country's leading districts in implementing self-paced, learner-centered educational practices. In the meantime, thank you for listening to the From My Angle podcast.